What does tennis, flying a general aviation airplane, and managing the pain of life have in common? Well, let's find out in today's podcast. Hi, I'm Dee Hicks, and welcome to the School of Leadership, leveraged lessons from high-impact leaders. For the past 30 years, I've researched the disciplines, habits, mental models, and assumptions of the most effective leaders. This podcast takes what I've learned from over 2,000 of these influencers and distills it into practical tools and tips you can use immediately. So let's get started. Toast in the foot of a Rocky Patel sun-grown Maduro cigar. That's a great cigar. Mm. Hey, welcome. Glad you're here. I am going to be enjoying today a little bit of bourbon with my Rocky Patel sun-grown Maduro cigar. Wow. Wow, this puppy is putting out a lot of smoke. <laughs> uh, that's good. I'm not complaining. I like it. I like it a lot. To me, it's a little sweet. Um, not to the taste, but to the smell. Mm. Yep, this cigar almost smells like a little bit of... Uh, smells a little bit like maple syrup and... I don't know, like a marshmallow, like, you know, you know, when you, uh, when you make s'mores and, uh, my favorite part of the s'mores is of course the marshmallow. And since I've got a copious beard and mustache, getting messy, sticky food into my gullet without it contaminating my beard and mustache is an art form. So I don't eat them often, but s'mores, you know, when you, when you make, when you toast the marshmallow and it has a little bit of that, that moment just before it bursts into flame and you've got to <laughs> chuckle and start over, that's smell right there. That's the smell that this cigar has got to me. Here, here, you can have one. Ah, you're not here. Ha, ah, too bad. There's a chair right over there. You could sit down and uh, we would record this conversation, but we're not, you're not here. And I'm going to put with it, you hear that, yeah, that is the double gold medal winner for the World Spirits Competition in San Francisco in 2020. It's not a gold medal hanging off of it, but it is a, it's a great look in the medallion that comes with this bottle of Garrison Brothers Texas Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Now this tells you something. It's a 750 milliliter bottle, kind of the standard size bottle for most whiskeys or most bourbons, at least the ones that I get. Um, it is 115 proof, and there's only about um, an inch of it left in the bottom of this bottle. <laughs> this is great stuff. It came from, um, it's called Balmeray. Uh, Balmeray, apparently there's a, I've not been there, but I've sure seen videos and heard people talk about the Balmeray State Park and how beautiful that is. I think it's in West Texas somewhere, and it's a little bit of an oasis in the middle of what's a what's fairly arid, I guess. Um, I've been to Texas, but mostly to the large metropolises, metropoli, metropolises, cities. There, we'll call it that. <laughs> Haven't been able to get out much out into Texas, but wow, I had great experiences there. Love Texas. Doesn't everybody? Anyway, so here it is. This is the Garrison Brothers Balmeray Texas Straight Bourbon Whiskey, 115 proof. So that means I'm going to drink it very slowly and not have very much of this. I'll pour a little bit here. So that, that's about, 
That might be a shot, maybe a little less than a shot. So that leaves me three quarters of an inch left in the bottom of this. I'd share it with you if you were here. It's great stuff. It's nice and dark too. I like a bourbon that's dark instead of almost see-through Lipton tea water or something like that. It's great. One great big large form clear ice cube in the bourbon. I'll take one sip. It gives you this really nice, you know, high proof kind of burn at first, but then that goes away very, very quickly. They say on the, on the side of the bottle, it's bold, but majestically crafted. It's having been aged not once, but twice. <laughs> I think that's described my life. I have not, I've not been aged once, but twice. I had a friend say to me, it's not how old you are. It's not the years, it's the miles. <laughs> I've got a lot of miles on me. <laughs> so anyway, this has been aged twice in two completely different oak barrels. The result is this perfectly balanced, rich bourbon flowing with crimson candy flavor. You know, that's a great way to describe this. If you can find a bottle of this somewhere and uh, enjoy it, then go for it. Share it with a friend, of course. Don't just sit around in some dark sound booth studio and drink it by yourself. <laughs> yeah, this is born and bred in High Texas. H-Y-E, High Texas. So, there we go. Here's the question of the day. What does tennis, flying a general aviation airplane, and managing the pain of life have in common? Well, let's find out in today's podcast. This podcast is the third in the series about our relationship with pain. The whole series is called, That's Gonna Leave a Mark. And we're going to call this one, Get a Grip. So stick with me as we enjoy some bourbon and a cigar and talk a little bit about our relationship with pain. It might be one of our longest, most enduring relationships in life, and one we don't think much about. In high school, for me, back in the day, my two favorite sports, although I tried out a bunch of them, were cross-country and tennis. I especially liked doubles tennis. I like a small team. I like a small field. I like the precision, the intensity, the unpredictability of doubles tennis. Wow, that was fun. Hours and hours and hours playing tennis with friends and then on the team. And then my favorite person to be paired up with was a guy whose nickname was Cotton. I gave him that nickname. I think it stuck. I think to this very day, people still call him Cotton. He was so white that he was almost clear. <laughs> but that's not why I called him Cotton. I called him Cotton because he had really tight, wiry, light blonde hair. So he looked a little bit like a Q-tip to me. <laughs> and so being the kind and supportive friend that I was, I nicknamed him Cotton, like a cotton ball sitting atop of his head. I don't know. He didn't dislike it. I guess he came to like it because it stuck with him years later. So Cotton was my favorite doubles tennis partner. And we were really, really good in our own minds. And the only part about playing doubles tennis that was not very enjoyable for me was losing. <laughs> I was very, very, very competitive. I don't know. We probably won, I don't know, 60%, 70% of the matches that we were involved in. We were not world-class except in our own minds. It was a really enjoyable sport. 
Uh, then the second sport I got involved with was cross country. We had a cross country team and a great cross country coach named uh, Coach Long. It was it was a really enjoyable part of my life. I liked it a lot. I like training together with a group of people, but in a way competing on my own. And uh, the cross country team, like uh, all cross country teams, tend to attract a certain type of personality, and uh, that was my personality for sure. And I came to really enjoy that kind of competition that was really mostly in my head. We had a bunch of folks who were really, really good. Uh, they could run long distances. They could run quickly. They could manage their energy, but then they didn't win the events as much as I did because they just couldn't get inside of their head and manage the pain of cross country. And so those two sports, I enjoyed them a lot. Although, like I said, I tried out a bunch of other sports along the way. And in tennis, let's zoom in on that for a second, because I did ask the question, what does tennis and flying an airplane and managing the pain of life all have in common? Well, let's look at tennis first. Along the way, somewhere, I got uh, more and more and more competitive and won a little bit more and a little bit more as singles and in doubles tennis and had a great time doing it. But along the way somewhere, I, I started noticing a pain in my right elbow. Yep, you got it. Turned into tennis elbow. You might have even had tennis elbow and you might have been diagnosed with tennis elbow at one point in time and then responded to the physician, well, I don't even play tennis. <laughs> well, tennis elbow has come to be known pretty widely as something that occurs when we injure our elbow, not by how we swing. By the way, I had a killer serve. Not by how we swing or how we serve, but by how we're gripping the tennis racket. It's the grip. My grip was wrong and too tight, and it created tennis elbow. And so my coach, Coach Walker, who was the coach of our tennis team, would yell at me from the side, get a grip. And what he meant by that was make sure that your grip was correct. Because if I gripped it too tight or incorrectly, then that grip itself would cause me to overstress my elbow. And it took me a little while to overcome that. And so that stuck with me quite a while. Often the injury that we create in life is not as a result of the thing we're swinging at or we're lifting or the thing we're doing, but, but it is the result of how tightly we're gripping the thing. That's kind of going to be our theme as we go through this today. Well, then what does is, what is flying a general aviation airplane have to do with that as well? Well, I'm still learning. I guess all pilots are still learning how to fly an airplane. And uh, fairly early on, and then a few times after that, my CPI, my instructor, would say to me, hey, 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 your grip's too tight. You're over-controlling. You're over-controlling. And uh, I felt early on, and occasionally it still hits me, that I felt like that by my own strength, I needed to hang on to the yoke of that Cessna 172 that I was learning to fly and hang on to it so tightly and so correctly that I'm holding the airplane up by the strength of my grip. That's what it felt like to me anyway. That's my amygdala talking for sure. That's not how an airplane stays in the air by pulling back on the yoke and keeping it up in the air with my very strength of my grip. In fact, I would, because I would grip so tightly, the small movements necessary to be able to control an airplane would be almost impossible for me to do. I would over control the airplane because my grip was so tight. At one point in time, my instructor, one of my favorite instructors named Aaron, said to me, here, if you could, I think Jeff also said this to me, a second instructor that I've had and thoroughly enjoyed both of them. 
and they are now off flying for the airlines. But Aaron said to me, here, hold a pencil in your left hand as, if, as though you were going to write. Now, I write with my right hand, but I held it in my left hand. You can imagine now holding a pencil in your hand like you're going to write. And he said, then keep that pencil between your first and second digits there and then open up your hand and hang on to the yoke with just your middle finger holding the pencil with just your middle finger and your thumb that's all you need to do further on in lessons when i began to learn to fly using just instruments it's called ifr flying instrument flight rules where i'm looking only at the instruments and we are uh, we've got this thing called a hood on or goggles or foggles they're sometimes called so so they're designed in such a way that i can see clearly the instruments on the panel in front of me but i can't see out the window because the goggles foggles would actually fog out the side view and then the front view above the dash on the airplane so in learning how to fly instrument flight rules or ifr I was taught to make sure that I had very small movements, very small corrections, because I'm flying by instrument. I don't want to be jerking that airplane around and then kind of S-curving my way, snaking my way along a, a particular ground track. So I learned fairly early on, and then of course need to be reminded from time to time, not to grip the yoke too tightly and not to over-control the airplane. So you see this, the theme here. Don't grip that tennis racket so tightly that it causes an injury and then exacerbates the pain of that injury. Don't grip the yoke of the airplane so tightly that you over-control the airplane. And that is the theme of our conversation today regarding the pain of life. When you and I are experiencing a disappointment, a setback, a deep loss or a dream that dies, or the loss of a person or of a relationship or some sort of setback, or a physical manifestation of pain. We've been injured. We have a, a critical illness to deal with. We've broken a bone or a leg or something, and we experience pain, significant pain. We want to make sure that we get a grip, but only on those things that matter, and then have a light grip on those things that matter. Well, what are those things, and how do we, how do we get a grip? How do we adapt and overcome in the midst of difficulty, resistance, setback, pain, physical, mental, spiritual, relational, whatever pain that you and I are experiencing? How do we adapt and overcome? In our last podcast, I mentioned that there are two basic tracks down which you and I could go when it comes to trying to deal with the pain of life. One of those tracks we call adaptive coping track. And the other one we call a maladaptive coping track. Now, you know what those two words means. In one, in the maladaptive approach to coping with the pain and disappointment and difficult things of life, we do things that make us feel like we've coped, but they actually end up making it worse. And in the adaptive coping, we do things that actually end up making it better. They make us stronger. They make us more resilient. And we do so eyes wide open and with discipline. So let's zoom in a little bit on the idea of maladaptive coping. Now, I may be describing you, or if you're not very self-aware, I'm certainly describing a friend of yours. <laughs> so <laughs> you're going to instantly want to share this with a friend. So maladaptive coping is, is a, a series of things that we have learned to do when we are in pain that actually make it worse for us in the long run. Now, the reason we do them is that they don't make it worse for us in the short run. They actually make, it, make us feel a little bit better. 
Now, remember what we talked about last time, that fear in and of itself is its own kind of pain, and that when we are afraid, we have a physiological response, and then we have a psychological and then a sociological response, sometimes even a spiritual response to that kind of pain that we are experiencing. And let's think a, a little bit together about what's actually happening to us neurologically. When we experience a disappointment, fear, pain, setback of some sort, our amygdala, which is this amazing constellation of, of nuclei in our brain that is responsible for creating all of our emotions. But before it's creating all of our emotions, which it does so very, very quickly, it creates what we call a heightened emotional salience. In other words, when we think about something or experience something, some of those things will become more salient to us than others. They'll become more pronounced. They will grab our attention. Heightened emotional salience is an important thing for us when we're threatened, when we experience some sort of threat. We want to pay attention to it. We want to have emotional salience to it if we experience threat. So that's what the amygdala is all about. It's, oh, look at that. Pay attention to that. Don't pay attention to that over there or that behind you, but pay attention to this. There are no words that go with that, but that's what's happening with our amygdala in full gear. The function of the amygdala in part is to highlight our perceptions that result in a physical experience of emotions that grab our attention and cause us to focus. That's what the amygdala does in part, in large part. So I'd like to highlight four ways that you and I can go down this maladaptive coping track. And you might be able to think of more than the four, but these are the four most common ways or cousins of these really common ways that we adapt in an unhealthy way to the pain of life, to setbacks, to disappointments. The number one way we do that, it's the most common way to me, is to worry. We begin to worry about something because of the emotional and, and therefore cognitive salience that this event or this expected event has created in us through the function of our amygdala, we begin to worry about something. And you know what worry is? I said this before in other podcasts, and certainly when you and I have been out to dinner, we've talked about this before, that worry is simply fear turned down on slow simmer. It's just boiling, just barely boiling. It's staying hot, it's staying warm, and slowly cooking. <laughs> it's just fear turned down to simmer. There's an illusion to worry. This maladaptive coping mechanism we've got called worry comes with an illusion. And the illusion is that it's actually working. That the more I worry, the more I'm going to get closer to dealing with or overcoming or lessening the pain of life. Worry is, however, an endless spiral. It just keeps going and going and going and going. No one ever worried themselves out of pain. It simply does not work. So there, there you go. That's number one, worry. There's a faulty mental model that goes with this number one way that you and I walk down this maladaptive pathway, and that is I can worry my way to a solution. That's a faulty mental model or a faulty assumption. And there you go. That's number one. So number two is a cousin to worrying, and it's a very common way to go down a maladaptive coping pathway whenever you and I experience pain, discomfort, disappointment, setbacks. And that's overthinking. And it's not quite worry, but it's trying. It's planning and planning and planning and analyzing and analyzing and analyzing. And we, we just, we never quite get to the solution. And now we're not, not really worrying. Maybe we'll flip back and forth between overthinking and worrying, but the emotions are a little bit different in an overthinker, but they are underlying 
faulty assumption there is that I can actually come up with a perfect plan that will solve this pain that I'm in or this setback or this disappointment that we have got. And that that perfect plan then in and of itself will have such intrinsic value that I will suddenly be free <laughs> from the pain of life. There we go. So worry is number one. Uh, overthinking is number two. That's the second most common maladaptive coping pathway whenever you and I experience pain. Here's the third one. You ready for this? You ready for this? Complaining. <laughs> Complaining is a really common way for us to feel like we are adapting to and dealing with the pain of life. We complain to other people. We complain inwardly. We've got a critical judgmental mind, a critical judgmental spirit. And then maybe we gossip about other people, which is just a, a form of complaining. And we think that if we complain enough that somehow it'll ease the pressure of the disappointment. Some of us even are highly skilled at venting. And that's where we complain to other people about a situation. And we have a big diatribe with complete with PowerPoint presentation, it feels like. <laughs> venting, we talked about that in one of our podcasts way back in the day, but venting is really a destructive behavior because really venting is only rehearsing. When I'm venting to you and you're sitting there listening to me and rolling your eyes and wishing you could be somewhere else, all I'm doing is, is learning. I'm practicing a certain way of thinking. I'm practicing an inward story about myself or about you or about that situation that I'm in. I'm just rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. And the more I vent, the more natural that way of thinking actually become. Now, you know you're venting because if someone interrupts you and tries to challenge the way you think, you won't have any of it. You'll either shut them down or go on to someone else. That's actually venting. There we have it, worry number one, overthinking number two, the third most common way that we go down a maladaptive coping track when we experience pain is complaining, complaining, complaining. The fourth most common way we go down a track that's maladaptive is by what we eat and drink. And at the risk of coming across as a big fat hypocrite here, while I sip on this wonderful Texas straight bourbon whiskey from Balmeray, from the Garrison Brothers, oh, alcohol is a very common way for us to actually try to cope with, in an actual maladaptive way, the feelings of the pain of life. And if it's not alcohol, then maybe it's chocolate, or maybe it's carbs, or maybe it's tons and tons of food. You know, I don't eat very much. Oh, really? Did you, have you kept track of how much you eat during a day? And why do you eat? Do you eat because you're hungry? Uh, or do you eat because you are in pain? Let me get up close and personal. It is a very, very common way for us to deal with the pain of life. Just shove some carbs down our gullet. Just pound a sixth or a seventh bourbon, and then we will somehow feel better. Of course we feel better. Of course we do. When it comes to alcohol, alcohol has an amazing effect on our brain. After just a couple of shots of hard alcohol or two or three beers, it will actually affect the amount of dopamine and serotonin that we have in our brain so that our drive goes down and our sense of peace goes up. That is a huge effect. And so it does, it makes folks feel better. And so to get up close and personal, we follow that fourth track in a very common way because it's widely accepted in, in Western culture right now when we're in pain to eat and drink to assuage the pain. But it's maladaptive because it doesn't do anything but make us feel better in the moment and worse later. Ah, there we go. God, I got up close and personal with you about worrying, about overthinking, about about complaining and venting and gossiping and, and about using food and alcohol to adapt to the pain of life. 
And so with compassion, I'm suggesting to you that any of those done so that I can somehow deal with the pain of life are actually going to end up making it worse. And you know, you know this already. You've been around the block. You know, I'm, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. So I'm just highlighting that. That's all maladaptive coping. There are a whole bunch of other things we could list, but it seems to me that those are the four most common ways that you and I march down the maladaptive coping track. Maybe there's a fifth one, and that is doing all of them. <laughs> I worry, and then I overthink, and then I drink bourbon, and I eat chocolate, and then I complain to other people that the chocolate's gone. Uh, I do all of them. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what you, maybe that's you. Maybe I just described you. So we want to be careful. Those actually are maladaptive coping mechanisms, and they are quite deceptive in their effectiveness because when we eat that lemon meringue pie, it feels like I'm dealing with the pain because the pain subsides. It feels better when I gossip about other people because it feels like I'm doing something, but it actually isn't. It's very deceptive. So since you know all this stuff well, or you have a friend who knows all this well, you're probably much more intrigued about the adaptive coping track. What if we were to choose that one instead of the maladaptive coping track when it comes to dealing with pain? What if we could adapt? There are several ways that you and I can actually adapt. These approaches that are adaptive coping approaches actually are very, very simple. And they work slowly, but when they work, they really work. Here they are. If you're a worrier, schedule your worry. Whip out your calendar right now and put a 15-minute block of time on your calendar two days from now or three days from now, not much longer than that, where you're going to worry about something quite specific. Don't give yourself any more time than that, but put it on your calendar. The reason we do that, which I've mentioned in other podcasts, is that when that worry monster starts coming back up, I can say to myself, I'm not going to worry about that now. I am going to worry about it on Tuesday at 1130 in the morning. There. And when you do that, then your brain can kind of relax. Oh, oh, we got this. Okay, all right. So number one, if you're a worrier, schedule your worry. How do you know you're worrying? Often we don't even know we're worrying until we've done 12 or 13 laps around something. Well, at some point realize, oh, this is just worry. I'm not getting anywhere with this. That's number one. And so here's the second one. This is what's called the progress principle. I like this a lot that you and I will never get burnt out and utterly depressed as long as we are making small incremental bits of progress every day toward the solution or toward the goal or toward the outcome. And they only need to be small steps. So hark back to the last podcast where I ask you to think, what am I afraid of? And then what would I do if I were not afraid? And then what's the next very small thing that I could do right now that would get me closer and closer toward that thing I would do if I were not afraid? That's what we mean by the progress principle. And that is pick something you're going to do literally right now in order to deal with the disappointment and the pain. And it needs to be extremely small because if it's big, we won't do it. We'll put it off until later. Let me share something that those who have studied anxiety and anxiety disorders have discovered or created or something like that. That if, if someone is in a worried state and then an anxious state having to do with pain in their life, uh, they practice what's called the 3-3-3 tool. 
And this enables them to do something very small right here, right now, and move toward a desired outcome. And in so doing, it changes the neurology of their brain, then their psychology, and then their sociology, that is their relationships with others, so that they are not defined by their pain. Here's the 333 rule. If you find yourself worried and then tipping into anxiety, move three parts of your body. Start with one, the bigger the muscle group, the better, and then add to it the second one, and then add to it the third one. For example, you may want to put all of your weight on your left leg, stand up, put all of your weight on your left leg, and then flex your right leg. Do that for a couple of seconds and think about it while you're doing it. This sounds very strange, but it's amazing what happens. Then while you're doing that, add a second one, which might be to shake your head, move your head from side to side in rhythm with your right leg going up and down, something like that. And then add a third part to it. Maybe hold your breath and and do it or inhale and exhale slowly while you're doing it or maybe the third thing is to move your left arm up and down while you're doing that movement right there all right that's the first three then stop that then look around the room or wherever space you're in and and see three things you did not notice a moment ago look right at them look right over there oh look at that and think about, oh, I didn't even notice that. And then calmly move over to look at something else that you did not see a moment ago. Look at it for just a moment and then look for a third thing. Now you've done three, th you've moved three parts of your body. You've now looked for three things. This has only taken a, just 30 seconds, maybe a minute so far. It's all it's taken to do these, these first two threes. Now add the third three to it. And that is listen for three sounds that you were not hearing a moment ago. Get really calm and listen. Did you hear that? Did you hear that over there? And there's another one over there. The amazing effect is that it calms the signals coming to and from our amygdala and it enables us to take control of this galloping anxiety that we have or this galloping worry, or this galloping fear. Then when you do that, you can now think, all right, okay, what's the next small step I'm going to take in dealing with the pain of this disappointment, or setback, or fear, or even physical pain? And you know that when it comes to physical pain, we can interrupt the physical signals to our brain that we are in pain by having other signals that block the pain and it's called effleurage. You've experienced it before. If you hit your thumb with a hammer and then you grab your thumb and jump up and down and move your arm back and forth, you're really sending other signals that supersede the physical signals of pain to your brain with other physical signals. That's called effleurage. Well, we can do that with our brain. We can do that with all sorts of things. We can send other signals to our brain that, in effect, decrease the subjective side of our experience of pain. Okay, so, so back on track. Here we go. The first thing you've done is you've scheduled your worry if you're a worrier. Another thing that you can do that's an adaptive coping approach is to make very small steps, very small progress right here, right now, when you're right in the middle of pain. And it will almost completely interrupt the signals of the pain, emotional pain, mental pain coming from the situation that you're experiencing. So here's the third one. Control the stimulus that you have around you. Don't sit around and watch depressing movies. Don't listen to depressing music. Don't be around depressing people. Don't be around people who in and of themselves are selfish and, and steeped in maladaptive coping mechanism. <laughs> this stimulus control thing, think about things that are good. Think about things that are lovely and wonderful and honorable and pure. Think about those things. Focus on those things. Read those things. Listen to that kind of stuff. That's stimulus control. Because if you're in pain and you're hanging around people who are in similar pain and they're just 
just, you know, milking it for all they've got, it's just going to get worse for you. And here's the fourth idea. It's come to be called mindfulness. And one slice of mindfulness is to practice being in your mind right here, right now. In our work that we turned into a book called The Five Disciplines of High-Performance Teams, we found out that the first discipline of every high-performing team was what we called showing up. You can't get the other disciplines, and then you can't get to a place where you're a high-performing team if you don't show up. And showing up, if you listen to those podcasts way back in the day, you might have heard me describe this, has two sides to it. One side is to fulfill your promises. You say you're going to be there at 9, be there at 8.55. Okay, so show up, fulfill your promises. But the other side of showing up is showing up mentally. Be here, right here, right now. Don't take a flight of fantasy off somewhere else in your brain, but focus and practice being right here, right now. Because worry and fear and maladaptive coping is all about getting us out of the current present moment. It's all about that. But if you and I are mindful, we practice being right here, Right now, take a deep breath, listen to the people around you, enjoy the feel of the leather-clad steering wheel in your hand as you're driving, enjoy the feel of the wind on your face if you're out for a walk in the woods while you're listening to this podcast. Literally be right here, right now. And in so doing, that focus on this moment and on what a gift it is to be in this moment will enable you to completely rewrite the experience you have, are having with pain, disappointment, setback, whether it's physical or whether it's in, in a relational or a mental or a psychological pain that you might be experiencing as a result of a setback. Be right here, right now. Those are four ways. You can think of many more, I hope. Some of you are probably so well-practiced at this that you are talking to me even as I record this podcast. Yeah, well, you forgot about this. And what about that? And I've learned this and I've tried that. Ah, that's wonderful stuff. I'm just trying to make this simple and straightforward so that we can actually use this stuff right here and right now. Schedule your worry. That's adaptive coping. Don't just worry all the time. Come on, turn it off and then put it on your calendar and then go ahead and worry when you get to that point, but just for a couple of minutes. And then make a step every day in some small, small way. In fact, get more real about it. And then make progress today, right here, right now, in very small steps. And then control the stimulus that you're getting. Shut down the negative stuff. And then fourth, practice being right here, right now. All of these are adaptive coping mechanisms. All of these work. One more thing. One more thing. Let's go back to tennis. Let's go back to tennis elbow. If you and I want to be very, very good at dealing with the difficulty, the resistance, the pain, the struggle of life, if we want to be resilient, we need to get a grip. We need to relax our grip because control of most things in our life is an illusion. Relax your grip just a little bit. Remember, you can only control three things. I can control whom I trust. I can control how I look at something. What's my perspective of myself, of us, of the work we're doing? Zoom out. Zoom out. I can control my worldview. I can control my perspective right? I can do that. Go ahead and do it then. And the third thing I'm in control of is my behavior right now. I'm not in control of my behavior yesterday and tomorrow's not here yet. I'm in control of my behavior right now. So relax your grip a little bit on the yoke of life. Relax your grip on the tennis racket of the game that you're playing and hold firmly onto whom you trust, what's your perspective, and what's your behavior right now, 
and don't make it harder than it needs to be. Well, you know, I talked for so long that the ice, I just need to apologize to the Garrison Brothers, the makers of this fine Texas whiskey, because I talked so long without sipping this bourbon that the ice melted down, and now it's only maybe half strength. But you know me, I'm going to enjoy it anyway. I'm going to drink it anyway. I'm going to relight this cigar that went out probably 10 minutes ago. Enjoy the rest of that. And I hold the cigar lightly in my hand. I'm not gripping it tightly. <laughs> I hold this beautiful cut glass, bourbon glass that I've got lightly. Hold it up to the light so I can see what it looks like. It's beautiful. I enjoy it a lot. And you know what would make it even more enjoyable? Is if you were here in the sound studio with me enjoying a cigar and a bourbon, we would talk a little bit about what you have learned about getting a grip. There we go. Well, enjoy the rest of your afternoon or your day. Share this, by the way, with a friend if you think someone might enjoy this and you think it might be helpful for them. Hey, reach out. Some of you got my phone number. Send me a text. Tell me know what you thought. Talk to you soon. And I'm sure you've heard about it by now, but you may want to check out our YouTube channel that has this kind of information, lots of helpful tips for folks who are in leadership, management, supervisory positions, or if you're an influencer of people daring folks to do great things. Check us out on YouTube. It's the HILT, H-I-L-T, Academy, High Impact Leadership Training Academy on YouTube. Some great stuff. Join us over there. Subscribe when you get there, and that'll let us know you like that stuff. Anyway, have a great day. Thanks for joining me in today's School of Leadership. This podcast is part of the Archimedes Experiment, leveraged wisdom from the world's most effective leaders. If you're interested in more, go to my website, dhicks.com. Remember, my first name has only one E. Well, you'll find more short and helpful podcast books and blog posts. If this was helpful, maybe even share it with some of your friends. Have a great day.